And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, February 23rd, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a focus on some important procurement rule changes. The SBA moves to resolve a vexing wrinkle in the rule of two. Plus, contractors assess the Defense Department's latest small business strategy. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, rising workloads and understaffing are causing frustration for employees at the Environmental Protection Agency. EPA employees and union leaders urged agency officials and Congress to make some serious changes to the agency's workforce. The American Federation of Government Employees, which represents nearly 8,000 EPA employees, just held a rally outside the agency's D.C. headquarters. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman was there, and she joins me now. Drew, you're getting to be a rally regular here for the uh, different union-backed issues in town. What are the concerns now with EPA? What do AFGE and the employees say is the basic problem? Tom, it's kind of a combination of two issues. They're saying that they are facing kind of a lagging number of staff or employees in the agency compared with a growing workload that is largely coming from added funds under the Inflation Reduction Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. So specifically during fiscal 2022, EPA had about 14,500 employees, and that is a 20% decline from the highest workforce numbers that the agency had. Back in 1999, they had about 18,000 employees. So there has been a little bit of improvement in staff numbers in just the past couple of years, but this is not enough to, as AFGE says, as some employees are saying, to really tackle the increasing workload from these new bills. AFGE Council 238 President Marie Owens-Powell said that just bringing staff on board is also not going to be enough. We are facing a staffing crisis. We need to not only hire new staff, but the bigger problem from our point of view is retaining the staff that we have. We have 3,000 employees that have more than 30 years of experience. Of those 3,000, 1,500 have 35 plus years of experience. We simply cannot afford to have that wealth of knowledge walk out the door. Right. And that's something that we're seeing in a lot of agencies, you might say. And what about the employees themselves? What was their sentiment? A lot of the EPA employees who were at the rally and that I spoke to said that they are feeling, I guess, sentiments of burnout, exhaustion, just trying to deal with these increasing workloads. And some were considering leaving for other agencies or the private sector just because the work was just piling up. I spoke to an EPA employee, Teddy Bruce, who attended the rally. I can speak from experience in my office. There are people doing the jobs of one and a half to two employees on a regular basis and no uh, relief in sight. There's certainly significant burnout in a lot of employees and exponentially more talk of transitioning to different agencies. Yeah, well, there's no fun in working when the to-do list seems to be never going away and you can never get on top of that pile. And so what about the agency? What does management at EPA say now that they're, you know, three years into the Biden administration? Management said that they are trying to work with these union partners to try to listen to their concerns and make adjustments wherever needed. AFGE held this sort of week-long rally in D.C. to uh, try to 
raised concerns about the staffing issues at the agency. And the a spokesperson from EPA told me that agency managers met with union leaders during that week-long rally. The agency is also currently onboarding about 1,800 employees that would be to support the legislative work under the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act that's adding billions and billions of dollars of uh, funding and therefore work at EPA. And those 1,800 new employees would be on top of the 15,000 roughly EPA staff that are appropriated for fiscal 2023. Although AFGE has said that there are staff who are looking to switch agencies or walk out the door, EPA managers and the spokesperson I talked to, they pointed to data from the Partnership for Public Service that showed that EPA attrition levels were actually among the lowest government-wide over the past couple of years. Sure. Some of it's very specialized work. And, you know, probably the agency would like to have more people to relieve that workload, but you can hire the people you're appropriated and legislated to have as billets, and pretty much no agency can go beyond that. And AFGE was also talking about career ladders and pay, too, which is different issues from the workload. What happened there? So AFGE leaders that I spoke to, they said that the way that the agency is basically ranking or setting up the career ladders for some more tenured employees is different from those who are new or just coming on board. So for example, inspectors at EPA, those who have been around for a while can reach a maximum of GS 13 or 14 on the general schedule. But when new inspectors are coming in, they're being capped at GS-12 or GS-13. So that, of course, impacts pay for those positions. And it's not just inspectors. It's several types of positions at EPA. And the union and some employees that I spoke to said that basically that is causing some retention issues and trying to issues with trying to bring people on board as well. I spoke with Matt Costelli at the rally. He is a legislative advocate for AFGE Local 3607, which represents EPA employees in Denver. Our pay is shrinking, not just because of inflation, but because new employees, career ladders and salaries are being capped lower than their peers doing the same work. So same work, different pay. It's not fair. It's not right. And we need to be able to attract, retain, uh, the best of the best to do what we do, right? We address safe drinking water, clean air, uh, addressing super fun sites. And to do that, we need more staff that are paid fairly. Sounds like an omnibus rally there, because also on the agenda was remote work. And I think we know how AFGE stands on that. They are pretty much backing remote work when possible, aren't they? Absolutely. AFGE has spoken up advocating not just for EPA remote work, but for all agencies. And they've also criticized legislation like the Show Up Act. So this is not a surprise that they're also pushing for remote work and telework opportunities for EPA employees. The union actually negotiated with management a new contract provision that would allow remote work when it could be approved by a manager and an employee requested a remote work position. And there are a lot of employees that are making requests, but AFGE says they um, are sometimes being dismissed without a good reason for management. But as I said, AFGE is pushing for more of these opportunities, that, and they argue that it worked very well for EPA during COVID. 
All right. So some real tough issues there between management and the workers at EPA. What comes next? They are still working through contract negotiations for their collective bargaining agreement. There's a couple areas where they're struggling, such as the remote work aspect and the issue with promotions and career ladders. But it seems like from both sides, labor and management, they're both saying that they do want to have a positive partnership here. And they're trying to kind of work together to get through some of these issues. Owens Powell, who's the Council 238 president at AFGE, she said it's really going to be about working with the agency. We made it clear to them this is not a protest. We are here to help the agency and move the agency forward. If the agency fails, we fail. We truly want to partner with them. We truly want to move this forward. The way to do it is to help our employees. All right. So the contract will tell all, won't it? Yep. We'll we'll see how things progress from here. But it seems like, as I said, both kind of want to move in this positive direction. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, contractors assess the Defense Department's latest small business strategy. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's department issued a new small business strategy a couple of weeks ago. It comes as more dollars are going to fewer small businesses. The contracting world is pondering why the small business industrial base is shrinking. For analysis of the strategy, we turn to attorney Alan Chavotkin, a partner at Nichols Lou, And I guess, Alan, we should also say someone who's been watching this stuff for a really long time. What do we need to know about this new strategy from the small business standpoint? Well, Tom, thanks for the opportunity to talk about that. So in the end of January, when DOD issued its small business policy, they recognized that small business contracting is a critical element of the success of the overall DOD mission. And in fact, to its credit, DOD spends more than any other federal agency with the whole range of small businesses. But as you noted, the small business base is shrinking. And so this strategy was an effort at trying to address some key elements that the department could undertake internally to try to increase opportunities for small business. It's kind of an irony, though, because if the dollars keep rising that are flowing to small businesses and there are fewer of them, at some point they can't be small anymore. Well, that's exactly right. That's one of the challenges that many companies face, which is how big can we grow? Most small business owners want to be successful. They want to grow. But as the strategy also acknowledges and the Secretary of Defense in his overarching message said, the regulations are often an inhibitor to small business growth. And one of them is, as you said, when they're successful in the marketplace, they're no longer small. Now, some small business entrepreneurs start up for the purpose of getting to the point where they have enough mass to be sold to one of the mid-tier or upper-tier contractors, then they quit and start another one. And so you would think that the number at least would be stable of small businesses if that's the general phenomenon, but yet it's shrinking. Well, it's shrinking. Some of it is the economics behind it. Doing business in the federal marketplace is hard. It's expensive, uh, even as a small business. And so that's a challenge. Secondly, there are other markets available. The merger and acquisition activity has been very strong in the government contracting marketplace. So you see a lot of companies trying to acquire uh, niche small business players. And so there's a, a little bit of an ebb and flow. We've seen the growth in the small business market. But over the last decade or so, 
it's unquestionable the number of unique small businesses is shrinking and shrinking significantly. And I just wonder if from the standpoint of small business and industry in general, they look at Lloyd Austin has a policy to increase the small business space, but you've got an administration that pushes unionism in almost everything it can. I mean, for those in the construction field and who knows what other fields, they want labor agreements that match union pay everywhere, carbon emission reporting requirement, which is a very difficult burden on business, the cyber requirements that are coming from DOD and from the White House cyber policy. This is all adding on to the old-fashioned complexity of the FAR itself and the DFAR. Well, that's right. And there's no shortage of regulatory burden. Some of them are the contractual. Some of them are the socioeconomic. It's not a question of whether these are right or wrong policies, but they do add cost. They do add complexity. And for many companies, it's a choice of do I want to engage in this marketplace, the government contract marketplace, or the defense industrial-based marketplace, or do I want to just be in the commercial marketplace? Opportunities are far bigger and uh, more stable in the government side, but so too are the costs and the risks. Well, does this policy then, or what in it do you think encourages small business formation to become part of the DIB? Well, in part, that's one of my concerns about it, as I expressed in the blog post that I wrote on our website, the Nichols Lou website. All of these policies, the three primary pillars behind this, are all internally focused to DOD. So there's an expectation that these will yield to a greater opportunity for small business contracting. There's no timetable for actions. And so both of those things trouble me that there's really no direct effort at increasing contracting with small businesses and certainly very little to increase the number of small business concerns. Yes, because a mandate with no timelines just internal to the department. I mean, look how long it takes the department to implement often measures that are in the National Defense Authorization Act, the 800 series that come out every year. Sometimes it's three, four, five years to those get implemented. So when you have a person that may be secretary another couple of years, we don't know, and there's a policy with no deadlines, that doesn't encourage the idea that this is going to really permeate. Correct. And some of these are clearly going to take a while, but there was no start date, let alone no end date. So in many cases, there's some gaps. Maybe the department has answers. I hope they do. I hope they talk about it more frequently. I hope to engage with them over near term. But I was disappointed that the strategy itself didn't lay out, we're going to do this Q2, Q3, Q4 this year. We hope to conclude that by whatever date. Got it. We're speaking with Alan Chabotkin. He's a partner at the law firm Nichols Liu and longtime observer and operator in this market. And you've also got a blog post about new legislation regarding organizational conflicts of interest. And this has been something that's bedeviled industry for a long time in the federal market. It has. And uh, conflicts of interest is uh, one of those areas that doesn't lend itself. You you sort of know it when you see it, you hope. Uh, it doesn't lend itself to um, just isolation. In fact, the legislation, as it progressed over time and was finally enacted in the last days of the last Congress and signed by President Biden, changed over time from being a prohibition to really being direction to our friends at the Federal Acquisition Regulatory Council to 
write clearer rules to provide examples of how circumstances might arise for a federal agency of when a conflict might exist and what steps uh, companies can take to mitigate those conflicts of interest. Right. And we're talking again about organizational conflict of interest. The classic example is you can't help a agency design a system and then bid on the implementation of that system because that's often deemed as an organizational conflict of interest. Uh, Your experience is showing through, Tom. That's exactly right. The other type uh, not addressed in this legislation is called a personal conflict of interest when you look to the relationship of an individual to a set of circumstances. So this legislation directs the FAR Council to write a set of guidance improve the coverage in the federal acquisition regulation relating to organizational conflict of interest, and to do something that's not been done before, which is to write a contract clause addressing conflicts of interest. Since the federal acquisition regulation was first issued in 1984, there is no FAR clause dealing with conflicts of interest. The burden shift is on the agency to identify what conflicts they're concerned about and then to write a clause for its individual contract or family of contracts to begin to identify those areas of conflict and the plan that the contractor is going to have to mitigate that if they can. So the FAR Council then has the main task here. It's it right now in this game. It has to define OCI much more carefully And then it has to turn that into a rule in the FAR, which means rulemaking is going to start at some point. That's correct. And in fact, just the last couple of days, the FAR Council took the first administrative action. They opened a case, which is the starting point for action. But experience tells me that this is a 12 to 18-month process. Well – On the other hand, the FAR Council does get on to these things, and it does take a long time. I mean, there are statutes about rulemaking, and it takes the time that it takes. And it's fair to say that the FAR Council and some other agencies that engage in rulemaking have redone rules based on comments, which leads to a fresh round of comments instead of going directly to a final rule or to an interim rule. So that sounds encouraging. It does, and they've got a very good track record of that and taking those comments seriously. It's one of the things that I'm working with some of our clients on to begin to give ideas to the FAR Council on how they might address this, get in early in that regulatory process with recommendations so that as they begin to formulate a rule, at least they have the early benefits of industry comments. I encourage others to do that as well. And then uh, hopefully they'll issue a proposed rule. And that's the time when most feel most comfortable commenting because then you have something tangible. And you actually know which direction the council is heading. And this could relate back to the small business question and create complications. For example, if as a small business you did design or help an agency lay the groundwork for a system, and then if your company is acquired and then the larger contractor is bidding on that work, then you've got both a personal and an organizational potential for conflict of interest. Right. The secret to this, in my view, at least the the imperative is companies ought to know in advance when they're going to be faced with this conflict and be able to make a business choice, just like the agency should be able to make a business choice in light of a conflict. The worst circumstance would be retroactive or a look back and say, aha, because of work you did two years ago before you even knew it was a problem, now you're precluded or limited in some way. That's not helpful for the agency. It's not 
helpful for business. And so early identification by the agency of the things that are the conflict for them and uh, direction then to the contractor, the bidders, on uh, whether it is and if it is, what steps they'll take to mitigate it is really an essential element of a good regulatory scheme. Sure. So in the meantime, what companies can do is comment when that rulemaking comes out. Or even before. Or even before. Yeah, absolutely. Alan Chavotkin is a partner at the law firm Nichols Lou. It's always great to have you in. Tom, my pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to those blog posts at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, now in its 35th year, the Thrift Savings Plan offers a lot of investment lessons. But first, the SBA moves to resolve a vexing wrinkle in the rule of two. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Contracting officers are supposed to use small business set-aside contracts if they think at least two small businesses are likely to bid on a request. It's called the rule of two. There's a dispute, though, over whether the rule of two applies to task orders under indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts. Now the Small Business Administration is moving to resolve this question. We get analysis now from Rogers Joseph O'Donnell attorney Stephen Bacon. Mr. Bacon, good to have you with us. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. And the problem here is whether that rule applies, you get one answer in the GAO on protest and another answer from the Court of Federal Claims, two completely opposite answers. Is that the issue here? That's right. For for about the last 10 years, GAO has ruled that the rule of two uh, doesn't apply when an agency is awarding a task order under a multiple award IDIQ. But a couple of years ago, in the Tolliver Group decision from the Court of Federal Claims, Judge Salmonson ruled the opposite way and held that the agency does have to apply the rule of two as a threshold matter before they decide which type of contract vehicle to use. So that's important because if a contracting officer can simply avoid the rule of two by going to a multiple award IDIQ vehicle, that obviously has implications for the types of set-aside work that uh, small businesses can be can do. Right. And with more and more types of services being commoditized, open requisitions, open requests are getting a little bit less frequent than use of these large vehicles, correct? That's right. That's right. And so that this kind of this split in the law is becoming even more important. And I think SBA has recognized that. And they've gone on record in prior GAO decisions. Sometimes the GAO, when it involves an issue of small business rules, will ask the SBA to weigh in on the protest to give their interpretation of their own regulations. And in some of those prior GAO cases, the SBA has gone on record and said that it believes that the rule of two should be applied before a decision about which type of contract vehicle to use is made. But GAO has said, well, we disagree with your interpretation of your own regulations, and and that's our opinion. Um, And so now I think what we're seeing is SBA wants to step in and clarify this as a matter of, of regulation. Right. And just a quick question before we get to some of those details. Is there any statutory underpinning for the rule of two that says only mentions, for example, open competition. Yeah. So there's the the ambiguity arises from a 2010 amendment to the Small Business Act, 
which said that agencies had the discretion to set aside task or delivery orders under a multiple award IDIQ. And that's where the source of the split has come. GAO ruled that 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 amendment to the Small Business Act meant that agencies didn't necessarily have to apply the rule of two before using a task order. And the court reached the opposite conclusion, interpreting that specific uh, statutory change. Sure. And do you think that there is an increasing problem with this ambiguity? Because up until now, most of the big IDIQs were either designed for large competitors or they had and they had companion vehicles or next door vehicles that were set aside for small business. But now we're seeing small and large on some of the emerging IDIQs. Right. You're seeing more and more of that where there's these different swim lanes for small businesses and large businesses. Um, and so I, I anticipate that this rule change will address that specifically and, and how agencies should handle that when applying the rule of two. We're speaking with Stephen Bacon. He's an attorney with Rogers Joseph O'Donnell. And let's get into the SBA. What are they changing and will that help them conform better to the statute as it was changed back then? Or what, what are they going to do here? So uh, we haven't seen any of the details yet, but we're expecting uh, a proposed rule. I would expect sometime this year to come out to explain how the SBA wants agencies to apply the rule of two and specifically I expect them to essentially codify what the Tolliver Group decision held, which again is that that agencies have to apply that rule of two as a threshold matter, which means that that that, that they have to, before they decide to use, for example, uh, an IDIQ vehicle with um, only large prime contractors, they would have to do uh, market research to determine whether there are two small businesses out there that could, two or more small businesses that could they could do the work. And if they conclude that there are two small businesses that that could compete for the work, then they have to set it aside under under some type of vehicle. And so I anticipate that this rule will will clarify that there are some potential exceptions that could be made. This is still a, a rule that's um, undergoing interagency review and review by OMB uh, as part of that whole process. And so uh, it's not entirely clear how this rule will shake out in its proposed form. Right. That rule has to go through OIRA first, right? The Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. And they're kind of backed up right now, aren't they, with rules, proposed rules? Uh, I, I believe that's typically the case. I don't know exactly what the exact status is right now. But um, but I, I got the sense in hearing the update uh, where this came from was a regulatory update provided by SBA's uh, Associate General Counsel for Procurement Law, giving an update on their regulatory agenda. And so this is one of the key issues on their agenda that I expect that they would be able to push through uh, sometime this year. Right. So the um, proposed rule itself is actually not out yet. That's right. That's right. So this is not in place yet. And so you know, until that change is made, you still have this split between GAO and the court on this issue. And did you get the sense that when they come out with a rule, it will be proposed, it won't be interim, for example? I would expect it will be a proposed rule. Uh, I didn't hear anything differently uh, during this regulatory update that I mentioned, and, and I would expect they'll want to give uh, uh, industry a ch an opportunity to weigh in. I expect there will be a good amount of interest in this rule in particular. So I guess whether, say, the legal community thinks it's good or bad to clarify this according to how SBA wants to do it depends on whether you represent small businesses or large ones. That's right. I mean, I, I think that my expectation would be that large businesses would 
would be resistant to this because I think if this rule goes through, you're going to see task orders that were formerly performed under IDIQs with large businesses suddenly shifted and set aside to to other vehicles. And so I think that that, that could create some, some interesting issues in terms of accelerating this trend that we see towards more mentor-protege joint ventures and things like that, where you see large and, and small businesses teaming up to be able to, to perform set-aside work. But in general, do you feel it would be better to have this issue clarified than to have protesters shopping different venues for their protests, depending on the particulars of a different case? Sure. I think I think clarity in the law uh, is is always a good thing, and, and particularly in this in the small business realm where you have small companies who who are are trying to compete for set asides and 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 aren't going to be as sophisticated in understanding how all these rules operate and, and work work together. And just to put a period on it, the SBA says it wants to clarify that by having it such that you the rule of two would apply to IDIQs. That's right. That's their intent, as it was described uh, to a meeting that I attended where, where their regulatory agenda was described. All right. Stephen Bacon is an attorney with Rogers Joseph O'Donnell. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, now in its 35th year, the Thrift Savings Plan offers a lot of investment lessons. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. If you've been investing in the Thrift Savings Plan for its entire 35 years, you've likely got a pretty good nest egg. Consistency and patience, that's part of what we've learned from the TSP over the decades. For more, we turn to certified financial planner Art Stein. And is it possible? 35 years of the TSP. Yeah, and it's great to have that long-term record because we can really learn a lot from it. Investing is really a long-term proposition. People should look at it that way. And what we see when we look at the three TSP funds that have 35-year records So that's the G fund, which is short-term bonds, the F fund, which is longer-term U.S. bonds, government and corporate, and then the C fund, which is a S&P 500 index fund. It invests in the stocks of large U.S. companies, 500 of the largest. What we see is that the C fund more than doubled the return of the bond funds. And, you know, that's hugely significant. Now, the C fund was, of course, much more volatile, had more years where there were negative returns for the calendar years. Of course, the G fund really doesn't have volatility, and the F fund is volatile, but by a fraction of what you see in the C fund. In many ways, the G fund is just a little bit better than a mattress. Well, it's a lot better than a mattress because, one, it has a rate of return, and the money in your mattress does not. So the average annual return for the G fund over 35 years was 4.6% a year. The F fund was 5.5%, but the C fund was 11.9%, almost 12% a year, which is, you know, a great rate of return. Now, 2022 was extremely unusual in a couple of different ways. One, it was the first time both the F fund, which is the bond market, and the C fund, which is representing the stock market, 
both declined in the same calendar year. And the declines were pretty major. In 2022, even the bond fund was down 12.8%, and the stock funds were down even more. But there was a first time they were both down in the same calendar year. So is it fair to say that if the C fund was down, whatever, 13, 14%? 18. 18. That still would not have wiped out even two of the years of the 35 or of the prior several. No, because, you know, good years for the TSP are like 2020 and 2021. The C fund was up 18% in 2020 and 28% in 2021. Those were great years. And actually, 2019 was up 31%. So huge increases. And yeah, it was down 18%. But if you held on and you had started you know, say even in just in 2019, you were still came out way ahead. In other words, on the long term, they go up significantly, but it's more of a ratchet effect than it is a straight curve. Yes. And the way I describe it is it's like a person with a yo-yo walking up a hill and the yo-yo is going up and down and up and down. But because a person is walking up a hill, at some point, even when the yo-yo is at its lowest point, it's still higher than it was at its highest point further down the hill. And that's what we've seen with the U.S. stock market. So if you don't invest, that makes you the (laughs) yo-yo. Yes. Don't be the yo-yo. And just a point of historical question, what did people invest in before the TSP? Because the TSP is not quite as old as the 401k plan that it's part of. Yeah. Well, the TSP really started you know, with the G Fund, which I think started in 1987. What did federal employees have before any of that? They didn't have a 401k. It was uh, CSRS, and they had this great annuity, and the government didn't feel the need, nor should they have felt the need to offer them a 401k in addition. But then, you know, they wanted to switch to a less rich retirement package and give more responsibility to employees to plan for, you know, their own retirement security. So then they started a 401k plan. And that mirrored what was happening in the private sector, where there were a lot of companies that had great retirement packages, great pensions. Of course, the government calls the pension the annuity. But they got away from that because they could not afford it. It's a very expensive thing to do. We're speaking with certified financial planner Art Stein. And getting back to 35 years of TSP, what about some of the other funds? There have been foreign stock funds and some of the others. How have they done? Again, over the long haul. Yeah. The I fund has not done as well as the U.S. stock funds, although there were certainly years when it outperformed. The small stock fund is the S fund, and it invests in most of the U.S. stock market that's not in the S&P 500. It has not done as well at this point as the C fund, but there are certainly periods of time when it did better than the C fund. So I urge my clients who are in the TSP to invest in both the S and the C fund and even the I fund because the I fund, uh, now foreign stocks that are in the I fund, actually are cheaper than the C and the S fund. And cheaper means that If you look at things like price-earnings ratios, it's better for the stocks that are in the I-Fund. So presumably that would make the I-Fund an excellent long-term performer. And the S-Fund then sort of 
has the flavor of maybe a little more Silicon Valley, a little bit more startup companies that haven't made it to the big stock exchanges yet might be on the DASDAQ type of flavor. Well, I wouldn't say that so much because the big companies are in the NASDAQ or in the S&P 500. You know, you're talking about, you know, Amazon and Apple and things like that. You know, it could be like a major trucking company. It could be a manufacturing company. It could be a lot of different things. It could be a drug company. So, you know, hopefully they're going to do so well in the future that, you know, then they become large companies. And because... Your advice has been frequently don't try to pick stocks. That's why you're in these funds because you have professionals that have lots of input in order to tailor what those funds are made of to get the best return for the investors. What should people look at economically just to get a sense of what the funds might be doing in the future? Extremely difficult to do, Tom, because you know the stock market and the U.S. economy do not move because of the same stimulus. And the stock market, and this is what makes it very difficult, is a leading indicator of what's going to happen to the economy. So it tends to go down before the economy goes down, and it tends to start going up when we're in a recession and things still look pretty bad. So there's no like obvious clue as to what the future performance is going to be, and you can see that because – I mean, there's no one who has consistently predicted what's going to happen in the short term to stocks. And as a result, don't try and forecast. You know, you can look at 35 years worth and see that, you know, if I'm investing in the stock funds, I'm going to have some bad years. The number of calendar years where the C fund had a negative rate of return over the last 35 years, there were seven years. So 20% of the time it declined and 80% of the time it had a positive rate of return. Well, those are pretty good odds. You know, you'd like those odds in Vegas, right? You'd like those odds at the track if you bet on horses. But people don't see that. What they see is, hey, it could crash. And when it does, what I'm going to read in the press is this could be permanent. You know, this could be the end. And it's going to go on. That's when you need to be investing. And much is made of the number that rises and falls of people that have at least a million dollars in their TSP accounts. And if you look at the numbers carefully, it's basically the longer you're around, the more likely you will be in that millionaire so-called club. If you invest appropriately. Yes, that's right. And if you look at the very small accounts, those are associated with younger people that haven't been in the government so long. So the eternal lesson is borne out. There's no magic to becoming a 700, 800,000 or million dollar TSP holder except consistency, longevity, and keeping the nerve not to yank it out when things gyrate. Yeah. And I have met several people who very long-term federal employees who, you know, basically kept their money in the G fund. And, of course, they basically have what they started out with, with, you know, some small increase over time. And all of a sudden, they're doing their retirement planning, and they turn around to the TSP account. It's, like, not sufficient. It's not sufficient. Then, of course, it's too late. But first, people do have an annuity. It's just not the same as the SERS people, so it's not their only. Plus, they get Social Security. Absolutely. And and for the people who can live on Social Security and their annuity, they don't have to worry about the TSP so much. 
But the problem with that is that the annuity from the federal government for FERS employees has a, as you know, a diet cola cost of living adjustment. So anytime inflation's over 2%, they are not fully compensated for inflation. And inflation in the United States is normally over 2%. So they're looking at a pension and annuity where the purchasing power is declining over time. And it means that they then have to fall back on the TSP to make up the difference. So bottom line for 35 years then is? Stocks look good. Certified financial planner Art Stein, as always, thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Biden administration has directed agencies to focus on environmental justice and climate change. Officials think digital mapping can help these initiatives. A case in point, the Environmental Justice Index at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. For what that's all about, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday spoke with a geospatial epidemiologist at the CDC's Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. His name is Ben McKenzie. The Environmental Justice Index, which we call the EJI, provides a single community-level score that public health officials, uh, community groups, and others can use to map the areas most at risk for health impacts uh, related to environmental burdens. And we also know that social factors like race, uh, poverty, education, and pre-existing health conditions like asthma, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease can all make people more likely to become really sick because of environmental factors like air pollution. So uh, our tool combines all of these factors, these social factors, environmental factors, and health factors into a single understandable score that, that can be mapped. Got it. And this just launched in August of 2022? That's correct. The EJI rolled out on August 10th of 2022. And what was the lead up to that launch? What went into kind of building out this resource? As you can imagine, it takes a lot to bring together all of these different factors into a single score. So there was a process of building out a theoretical framework for our index, figuring out exactly what factors we wanted to uh, bring together in order to measure those impacts on health. So we did a lot of review of other tools and a lot of review of literature, consulting with subject matter experts to come up with our framework, which is, again, environmental burden, social vulnerability, and health vulnerability. So once we had our framework, uh, we moved on to figuring out what data we needed to, uh, to bring together to kind of fill that out and, and provide our overall index score. Um, so we looked at data across the United States, national-level data that measured, again, environmental factors that could influence health, social factors that kind of modified how those environmental factors uh, affect people's health and well-being, and uh, data on pre-existing chronic health conditions that also kind of modify how environmental factors influence health. So a lot of kind of time and review went into identifying the best data available at the national level, and then bringing all of that data together um, using a framework uh, originally developed at the state level called the Environmental Justice Screening Method that's also been applied to tools like CalEnviroScreen in California, Washington Health Disparities Map in Washington, and the MyEJScreen, a new tool out in Michigan. 
we reviewed all of that, brought that all together, and then also asked for review from subject matter experts in uh, environmental epidemiology and environmental justice before we actually put everything together, put all those resources out, and made them available to the public. Got it. And and so this has been done to a certain extent at the state level, and this is really the first national level look at this type of index bringing together all these factors. And and so how is it being used so far? I think we're about six months in. How are you seeing it being used? What kind of feedback are you getting on it? Yeah, absolutely. So again, it's a relatively new tool. So, So what we really are trying to do right now is we're trying to get the word out about it to let people know that it's out there and available for their use. So we've put on a series of public informational webinars telling people about our methods, explaining how to use the tool, and really seeking structured feedback on how to refine and improve our approach going forward for future kind of versions of the tool. So what we're really working on is, again, engaging with communities, engaging with people, letting them know that the tool is available, um, and getting feedback that we can use to make make our approach better in the future. And I imagine this is useful across a range of fields, from medicine to policy making. Right, like it kind of cuts across those different areas and can be used as a as a resource, I suppose, to help inform decision making. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we we believe that there's uses among uh, policymakers, public health officials individuals and community-based organizations. And these people can use the EJI to identify and prioritize areas that might need uh, special attention or additional action in order to improve health or health equity. Um, They can use it to educate and inform people about community-level factors, uh, including analyzing the unique local factors that are contributing to cumulative impacts on, on those communities' healths. Uh, and then kind of use that information to inform policy and decision-making, as well as to use that data to establish meaningful goals and to measure progress towards health uh, and towards environmental justice and health equity. We do plan to update the EJI regularly going forward uh, to, to use the best data available at, at the time that we you know, recalculate and re-release this index. So we do plan to provide future iterations of this tool, future versions of the EJI, but you know we'll, we'll kind of be taking taking another look at what the data are like at the time that we are, are looking at recalculating, and we'll also be again considering those comments from community members, subject matter experts, and everyone else who's providing feedback uh, to us through those uh, webinars, through community engagement sessions that we've been hosting across the country, and through our mailbox at EJI underscore coordinator at cdc.gov, where people can contact us with questions about the index or provide feedback on uh, data that they'd like us to think about considering for future iterations. Or, you know, let us know if there are particular problems that they might be having using the mapping interface so that we can address those in future versions of the tool. And then, you know, behind the scenes, we talked about all the work that went into just, you know, vetting the index ahead of time, making sure it was going to be a really, you know, fallible, good resource for folks. What about just accessing the different types of data that you need to feed something like this? Does this require a lot of, you know, interagency data sharing agreements? Do you have to go pull from someplace? Any sort of stories of just working across agencies, maybe across, across uh, different levels of government to pull this together? So I can say that all of the data that we use is publicly available. So we're using data from the Environmental Protection Agency, 
the U.S. Mine Safety and Health Administration, the U.S. Census Bureau, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, and all of those data are, are, are kind of publicly available online. Most of them can be accessed very, very easily through API. You can you know, find a service online and download those data directly. That said, we definitely had experiences working with subject matter experts to make sure that we use their data appropriately. So we worked with the PLACES team at the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is an expansion of the 500 Cities Project. Uh, that's a, a co-venture between the CDC and the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We worked with their team to identify what data they had available to contribute to our health vulnerability measure within the Environmental Justice Index, and they provided a lot of insight on best practices for using their data and helped us to really transform that data into our tool. Ben McKenzie, geospatial epidemiologist at the CDC's Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Check out Justin's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, contractors assess the Defense Department's latest small business strategy. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. 57 past the hour. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Temin. 